You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Why is it that black tenors still struggle to get hired? One of the country's most famous black tenors, George Irving Shirley, who is now 86, commented in a conversation with another star black tenor, Lawrence Brownlee, that as tenors typically take the romantic leads, audiences are not comfortable seeing a black man be romantic with a white woman. And this is staggering to me. That this is still an issue in the 21st century. This has to change. But another problem, as Brownlee sees it, is that most opera companies have white administrators, predominantly white boards, composers are mostly white, conductors are mostly white, as are casting directors and artistic directors. He suggests that this is where his industry needs to change. And that is also true across the arts. In recent weeks, I've asked black artists to come and chat about the difficulties they face in a racially unjust arts industry. There have been public letters penned by actors, artists, writers and musicians to ask for this white hierarchy to be replaced. In the well-circulated Dear White American Theatre Letter, published just a few weeks ago and signed by over 300 actors, one of their many impassioned points is how organisations use black, indigenous and people of colour's faces on brochures. Quote, Asking us to politely shuffle at your galas, talkbacks, panels, board meetings and donor dinners in rooms full of white faces without being willing to defend the sanctity of our bodies beyond the stages you make us jump through hoops to be considered for. We see you. My guests in recent weeks have all been hopeful of change, but it is up to white arts lovers, white administrators, white directors and white audiences to demand those changes happen. On today's show, I asked two well-known local black actors, Enola White and Barrett Brooks, to talk about their thoughts on the national theatre scene and also what their experiences of racism have been in our local theatre world. It's an enlightening conversation. Also, we take a trip to the shelves of Summer Reading with Alex George, and we talk to the writer and composer Murphy Ward and theatre professor Dr. Joy Powell about a new musical called All the Spaces, penned by Murphy Ward, Kylie Compton and Sean Campanini. So I hope you can stay with us for the next hour as we take our weekly tour of the arts in mid-Missouri. Our first stop today is to chat with actors Enola White and Barrett Brooks. Good morning, Enola and Barrett. Good morning. Morning. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me about racism in theatre. I know it's an emotional subject and that some people are not ready to articulate their frustrations and disappointments and anger just yet. So I really thank you for starting this conversation with me. We should maybe start by saying that you both are involved in theatre because you love it and not because it pays any bills. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. Yes. 
<laughs> and you have both been in multiple productions at Columbia Entertainment Company at Maplewood Barn and Talking Horse Productions. And in NOLA, you not only act and direct in productions, but you also play saxophone or woodwinds in the orchestra pit. So you've really seen it from all angles. So I want to ask you both questions on two levels. First, your response to the national calls by Black, Indigenous and people of colour for white American theatre to recognise the racial injustices that it facilitates? And second, what your experiences have been here in Columbia and mid-Missouri and how white mid-Missouri theatre should change? So, Enola, earlier this month, 300 actors signed a letter that was posted online which starts, Dear White American Theatre, and which says very clearly, Enough is enough. And that you are all part of this house of cards built on white fragility and supremacy. And this is a house that will not stand. So I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the national theatre scene? I absolutely agree. I think that a house divided cannot stand. And we've got to do something to bring more people into our theater spaces. People of color need a spot to have their voices heard. And I think that we've done a good job of opening doors and allowing opportunities for people of color to be on our stages, be in our productions, be in our theaters and be recognized and appreciated for who they are. And not just people of color, but anyone from any kind of underrepresented minority group has a a space um, in Columbia Theater. Is it perfect? No, but we're working towards a, a a better theater experience for all of those involved. I think that there's phrases like colorblind casting, where, you know, you go in and a director says, I don't I don't see you because of the color of your skin. Well, that feels like you're ignoring an entire part of who I am. That's one of the most blatantly obvious things about me, other than being a woman, that you would see is the color of my skin. And so for you to deny that, even though you think it is it is good, is actually a negative. Um, and it, it really makes you feel disenfranchised and you don't want to go into the theater. You don't want to participate And then sometimes when you're in the theater, the way that people talk to you, the words that they use, the microaggressions that are used, and sometimes people don't realize it. And if you're a strong opinionated person, like I am, you will correct them. Um, But you hear those words and it really alienates you from the situation. So yes, white theaters, white Americans in theater, we need to do better. We need to open the door to people who are different, people who want to do theater because we are all the same quirky kinds of people, no matter the color of our skin, who we love, whatever. We all love this art form. So why should we not work together to uphold it and support each other? Is colorblind casting a thing in Colombia? Do most companies do that? I don't think companies do it. I think it's directors. And like I said, it's something that they view as a positive, but I personally view as a negative. So when I hear a director say we're going to do colorblind casting, I politely ask them to reconsider because, again, that's ignoring a very big part of who I am as an individual. I can't change the fact that I'm a black woman because you don't want to cast based on color. That's part of what I would potentially bring to the the part is my experiences as being a black woman. So for you to say colorblind casting, that again, that ignores a significant part of who I am and what I could potentially bring to the role. Barrett, what's your thoughts on colorblind casting? 
I would totally agree with Anola simply because, I mean, I've heard that phrase so many times and lots of times I, I hope the directors have the best, I guess their heart is in the right place. But at the same time, just like she's saying, it, being black is who I am. It's part of who I am. It's part of who I'm bringing to the character that I'm portraying. And so anytime you're just saying, hey, it's colorblind, then you're not really including me in the role because I'm here. And, and when I'm in a role, I like to use everything that's happened. I like to use my pain, my frustration, my joy, all of it to help bring that character to light. And if you're not doing that, if you're not a, even acknowledging it, I feel like they're you're leaving a lot out and it kind of feels like you're just I'm being disregarded for all the things that I am and all the things I can bring. There have been calls by playwrights Keely Gibson and Stacey Rose, and they say, we are living in revolutionary times. It is time to revolutionize how we create as individuals and how we engage white spaces, should we choose to, moving forward. Equity is no longer a request. It is a requirement. So, Barrett, do you think the arts, the arts generally, really, are at a tipping point and that change is coming? Yes, I, I definitely think there are. I mean, especially speaking in Columbia, I've seen a lot of changes on the shows that they've been choosing to produce. I mean, I was lucky enough to be in part of the Raising the Sun cast over at Maplewood Barn, which I think was probably the first time they had a predominantly black cast on the stage. And it was a, quite a boon for the community. And I personally, I loved it being around a group of people that look like me. And especially when I was performing, I got to see a lot of people that also look like me looking back at me, mm -hmm. sharing the pain of this great story, feeling everything that I felt. And it was a beautiful thing that I honestly had never felt before. And I loved it. And I kind of got addicted to it. And I want to see so much more of it all over the place. And I, I think it's something that we bring great stories. Everyone has great stories, but I think our stories have a lot of pain and frustration and joy and all the things that we have. And those stories should be out there just as much as any other thing, just as much as you should see Oklahoma, you should see stories by Lynn Nottage or anybody else. I just think it's just as fair. I think it's just as good and just as valuable and they should be on the stage and it shouldn't be an issue. It shouldn't be a thing. It should be these are great stories. We need to tell them. And they're from different voices. So, and everyone should hear them because it opens up a lot of eyes. Mm. Enola, are you, do you stand at this point and feel hopeful or feel like it's going to be business as usual? I feel very hopeful, um, especially in the Columbia area. We have a fantastic base of people of color who, like Barrett, they want to get out there. They want to perform. I mean, I'll include myself in that group. Like, we want to have opportunities to be on the stage. And my phrase for the longest has been, if you build a bridge, they will come. So you just have to put the opportunities out there for people to come and participate, to see people like themselves on stage. Representation absolutely matters. So when you see someone on stage who looks like Barrett, you see a little boy in the audience who is excited and wants to get into theater. And maybe they go on and they make it onto Broadway, um, but maybe they, they stick around and they're here in Columbia and we have another pocket, another future generation of actors to come who want to be on that stage and just share and partake in the arts. So, I mean, for both of you, you entered theatre without seeing that little girl or that little boy on the stage. I mean, you came into this predominantly white space and said, accept me for who I am. And was that difficult? What, what pushback did you get? 
So I'm kind of stubborn. Um, <laughs> and if I want to do something, I will do my best to insert myself into the situation. So for me and I will go back. That is my parents' fault. <laughs> um, they raised me to, to, to be that way, to be independent and inquisitive, to want to go into those situations, to see what it's like for myself. So for me, I didn't have the representation of, of a black woman in many roles because I grew up in a predominantly white area. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. So if I wanted to do anything, I wasn't going to have someone on the stage or in the band who necessarily looked like me. If that was something that I wanted to do, I just had to do it. So a lot of who I am and a lot of the way that I approach my own performing is because of that nature is I didn't see anybody. So I'm going to go ahead and do it because I think that this is fun and I'm going to take great pleasure and great joy. And then knowing in turn that someone can see me on stage, a little girl, a little boy can look and see me out on stage and they can see that I'm doing something great and I can hopefully in turn inspire them. So they don't have to be the stubborn, sassy um, little one walking into the room saying, I'm going to play the saxophone. You can't tell me that I can't. They have a little bit more leverage to walk in and a little bit more of an easier path to get to, to get to where they want to go. Barrett, what pushed you into the space? I I grew up in Kansas City, um, but my parents, they were public school teachers. So they were like, uh, we're going to get you in private school. And it just happened that in my school, theater was just something people did. It was just as valuable as sports and anything else. It was It was a great environment. But at the same time, I was the only black face in every production. And so when you're that person, it kind of helps you kind of have to stand up because you already stand out anyway. I've always said that I already stand out anyway, so I might as well just make sure I'm seen and work hard and let everyone know that I'm here and I'm going to do my best and I'm going to put on a great show. And so I've always kind of been that, that only person in the cast. And it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard because especially in high school, I had was a, with a lot of people that said a lot of uh, really ignorant things for lack of a better word. Mm. And, I would take him to task and they'd be like, oh, man, just chill. I'm like, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. Like, You wouldn't say that to anybody else. Like if I said it to you, that wouldn't be cool. So let's let's just sit here and do let's just do what we're supposed to do. And it just kind of helped me grow and help me get stronger and be able to stand up and speak up. And I mean, my parents are always told us that, you know, we got to be better in this world. We have to. It's unfortunate, but we have to work twice as hard to get half as much stuff. And Uh so lots of times I work twice as hard and just to be seen. Mm. Enola, you mentioned that you had experienced microaggressions here in Colombia. What kind of things have been said that um, that have just made you like stop and say it's not okay? Well, the biggest one was when I was told to act blacker. Um, mm. no. So I, I, I stopped, I looked, and I asked if they wanted to rephrase what they said to me. Because there, I understood what they were trying to get at, but there are different ways that you can ask someone to, to go harder, you know, be a little bit more um, chill, be a little bit more relaxed. There are different ways that you could have elicited the same response from me other than saying be blacker. So I think that that's one of the the primary responses. I mean, some of the other ones have been mostly related to me being a woman in theater and people assuming that 
I don't have the education or the understanding of how something works because I'm a girl. And that's also doubly frustrating, but a conversation for a different time. Mm. But yeah, that's the one that sticks out the most to me. And when anybody asks me that question, that's the example that I give. Um, It's blatantly obvious, but you don't say something like that to someone. If you are trying to to elicit a response out of someone, you want a character to develop in a certain way, what are some of the attributes that you want from that character? Don't fall into a racial stereotype to try to elicit a response because, again, there are different ways that you could have, different words that you could have chosen, and no one would have thought the wiser because it's part of who that character was, and it would have aided in the development of that individual, and it would have been a appreciated. Mm. Barrett, what about you? Uh, Much like her, I've been told many times that I don't talk black enough, as it were. And it always just takes me aback because I am black and I talk how I talk. And it always frustrates me because it devalues who I am because of how I speak is a part of my development. It's part of everything I know. It's part of my history. It's part of how I was brought up, you know, and yeah, it's one of those things that happens so often that it's just grating. It's just like fingernails on a chalkboard to me every time it happens. And especially now I like to call up people and put them on front street and let them know it's not okay. You know, I mean, when I was younger, I would maybe laugh it off or make a joke. But nowadays I'm like, no, that that doesn't work. You need to stop because that's insulting. There is a huge difference between plays with black people in them which can often be, I think, detrimental to the black community, and black theatre, which focuses on social justice and uplifting a community rather than putting it down. And I feel that in Colombia, we do have a good number of black and brown people on our stages, but we very rarely see black theatre. Is it time for a black theatre company in Colombia, Barrett? I definitely think so. I mean, it would be great so we would have a place to put in these stories. I mean, because I know I've talked to a lot of people that when I tell them to do theater, especially I'm talking to black people in the community, they're like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. I mean, where can we go? Where can we have these stories? And I tell them about the places. And I especially would love it if we had a place where we could hear our stories, you know. There's nothing wrong with Shakespeare. There's nothing wrong with any of that other stuff. But our stories seem to be out there where we can see us and we can perform our stories and we can celebrate in our past and our future and all the things that we can. And I think that would be a beautiful thing. And I know I've talked to other people that said, oh, I don't know if there's an audience for it. There's an audience. Uh There is. There's always people that are going to come see stories about people and about want to see those things. They want to hear it. They want to learn. And there's been so many conversations I've had with people that they say that they're they're not going to do it because there's not an audience. There's not people that are going to come and people are going to come. And I think that it would be a beautiful thing. It would be an amazing thing, especially for this community. And at this time, it would just be phenomenal. Enola, what conversations have you had around the idea of a black theater company? I am absolutely in support of it. I mean, you look at, like Barrett was saying, people say that there's not going to be an audience for it. But then you look at what happened with Raisin in the Sun, with Ain't Misbehaving with Green Book at Talking Horse, with Dream Girls at CEC, and Hairspray at CEC. You look at the people that were in those audiences, and those were people that had never come to a show at any of those theaters before, 
And it was simply because of the stories that were being told. They wanted to hear those stories. They wanted to to see it firsthand. There were people that I was talking to in the audience after Hairspray, and they would come up and they would say, thank you for featuring people of color in your cast. And this is something that I never thought I'd see in this community. So there's, there is a, a group out there who wants to see more of this. And there's a group out there who wants to perform more of those stories. So I think that being able to build up a repertoire and having um, organizations like the Como Grio Society, they're going to be fantastic ways to, to launch us forward to having a repertoire, a organization for people of color to come and perform. And I had Richard Harris on the show last week, and he was talking about the Columbia Greer Society. And that, you know, that does feel like the first step towards creating a black theatre company. I mean, there was a point last year, I forget when it was, was it in the fall, when there were three plays on, all of which had a lot of roles for black people. And I know that was we were kind of in short supply. It's like, how do we find more black actors? Do you feel like if we have a black theatre company, that there are more potential black and brown actors that are just waiting for this to happen and that we will see an influx of people ready to be in a black theater company. Yeah, I think the fact that we had three shows going at the same time and each one of them was independently successful answers that question. Yes. Did we have to, you know, go and find people? Yeah, but sometimes you have to do that for other shows as well where, you know, you just don't have the auditionees come out and you have to go and ask um, people to come. But you get people that have, who, going back to what we were talking about, who have never done theater before, who didn't think it was okay for them to do theater or had, you know, an opinion that it's only a white space. And then you get them on stage for The Wiz, Dreamgirls, Vera Stark, and you watch them flourish on that stage and they get addicted. And that's what you want. You want to keep them. You want them to bite and you want to get them involved more. And we've got those, some of those people in the Como Grio Society, some of those people, I've got a just a side group me with a bunch of people of color who were in Dream Girls and in Hairspray and in Ain't Misbehaving. And we just randomly will send out audition announcements to each other because we want to encourage each other to go and be in different shows. But if we had a space that was just for people of color just to perform, I think that would be it would be a safer space and it would allow more people who want to try it to try it because I think there's there's this assumption that in predominantly white spaces, you have to be, like Barrett says, you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And I don't want them to feel that way. I want them to feel that, yeah, they are twice as good because they're twice as good, not like they had to work harder for it. Um, so I want them to go into those, those auditions feeling entirely confident. So I think having a space where they can safely practice, where they can learn the art and the craft is is going to be paramount to continue to, to build. And we've got the steam going, so we just got to keep the train running. And if I could jump on that. Sure. Also, I think that is also that it's important that we have our stories because there's so many times I've tried out for roles where, weren't, where there's many shows that I wanted to do, but I didn't feel like there was a role for me. There wasn't a place for me to be who I wanted to. And if we can pick those stories that show what we can do and have where you can read the character and be like, this sounds like me. This sounds like something I've gone through. I think that that would encourage more people to jump in, to try it because I know there's many times there's shows that I audition for. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get it because it just sounds like a white person. Right. And, but if I read it and I'm like, Holy crap, this sounds like something I've gone through. This is something that I could actually bring something to the role that I've lived through. And I think that would be a great 
addition to our theater community. Right. We touched on this earlier. I mean, you um, mentioned, I think, Talking Horse. I mean, they worked really hard this year to to correct one inequality and to and to give more stage time to female actors and female playwrights, female librettists and composers. And now, obviously, we're seeing more calls for more black theatre, more queer black theatre. There is so much theatre mm-hmm. that needs to be seen. And it, it just to me, it feels like we can't waste time rolling out more Shakespeare and Mamma Mia. There's too much important theatre that isn't getting on our stages. Do you think that we're going to see people's or the theatre company's 2021 season, assuming that it happens, look differently maybe than how they originally planned in Ola? I would hope so. Uh, I do serve on a play selection committee, so that's kind of <laughs> my on my agenda to have a lot of, of those stories told because I think that, you know, yeah, everybody wants to see the big tent poles of Oklahoma and they want to see Mamma Mia and things like that. But there are, you can see those shows, they're a dime a dozen, they're going to be out there um, and they're not going to go away, but there are much more important stories that can connect people to each other. And that's, that's the fundamental of community theater is making those connections, laying that community network. So why don't we tell those stories to connect more people and to, to bring them in? So is it going to be a hundred percent of a revolution? Um, probably not, but you're going to slowly start to see more of those stories being told. And I hope, I hope that we can get to a place where we can regularly routinely tell those stories because like Barrett said, there are people out there who they come to auditions and they come to auditions just to audition, but they don't see a spot for them. I want everybody to see a spot for them and see a place for them. Barrett, what plays would you like to see produced in Columbia? I know one I I personally love. It came out a few years. It's a musical called Passing Strange. It was on Broadway and it came out on my radar because Spike Lee loved it so much. He made a documentary of it and I got a chance to watch a documentary and I was blown away. It's a beautiful story about a black kid growing up in Los Angeles and just goes to Europe. It's a wonderful story. It's a rock musical. The music's great. The story's wonderful. And I mean, I've talked to anybody and everybody that'll listen. I love it. I would love to see it. Not just because I want to roll in it because I do, but (laughs) it's, it's also, I think it'd be a great story to tell. And I think it's something that people need to see because it talks about all the things, talks about culture, talks about religion, and talks about what it's like being a black person in Europe and how he's seen. I can't speak enough about it. I would love to see that show put on. Anybody listening? Enola, what would you like to say? Enola's listening. (laughs) Oh, I'm listening. I I just wrote it down. (laughs) Um, So there's a musical, it's called After Midnight, and it's more along the lines of a, a juke box musical, but it's it's kind of like in the same vein of Ain't Misbehavin'. It really talks about like the Cotton Club and it's a lot of jazz music, you know, Ellington, Arlen Hughes, poetry. It, it's a beautifully written story and it just, it features all African-American cast and all African-American music. And I think that I, I can't wait to see it. I was looking for, you know, musicals just so that I could find something fun and interesting. And this one just stuck out to me because the music is fantastic. It's fun to play. Um, that's something that's why I'm on the play selection committees is to talk about the orchestra perspective. It's something that's fun to play. And it's something that seems like it's fun to sing. There's a lot of dancing. It would be a fantastic show to, to bring to the stage just to kind of bring in that, you know, Harlem Renaissance sound to Columbia. Enola, is there anything else before we close you want to say about your experience as a, as a Black actor in mid-Missouri? 
So I will say my experience as a black actor in mid-Missouri is very limited. My experience has been more so to the behind the scenes and being in the orchestra, you know, serving in various committees, um, being on production teams and things like that. And I, it's really, again, those, those microaggressions that, that come through. But like I said, I am a strong enough person to say, Hey, you said this, and this is incorrect. Allow me to help you understand why this is incorrect. But the reason that I do that is because I know that there's someone who's coming up behind me who isn't going to be that strong person. And those words will cut them down and send them out the door. And I don't want that to happen to them. So I will take the brunt of it. I will you know, mow the lawn for them, create a pathway for them so that they can continue to blaze the trail. So I will take the brunt of the beating if I have to, to make this a better place and a better space for individuals of all representations, all kinds of backgrounds to come and participate in the the field of theater. Barrett, if I could be your fairy godmother and grant you three wishes for things that you'd like to see happen in the Columbia theater scene or... (laughs) <laughs> what would they be? Three things. <laughs> More roles for me. Just kidding. Um, but I would just like to say, like I've been saying the whole time, I would just like to see more roles for people of all colors. I'd like to see more stories for everybody. Not, I mean, I would love to see more roles that still, but everyone's stories. I mean, there's so many plays out there. Everybody's writing. Everybody has unique stories. And I want to hear all of them. And I want that all to be included. And I especially think it's important. I mean, I've been lucky enough that they've seen a groundswell especially in our community where our voices are starting to be told just like you're saying last year when they had like three shows going on all at the same time which was wonderful and i love getting all the calls where like can you do this i'm like i would love to but i'm already in this show but it made me so happy to see all those people coming out and putting on those great shows it it was i mean it was the first time in, in my time here i'd ever seen anything like that and i love it and i hope it continues because i it's nothing but a benefit to our community theater community and our community as a whole because i i think columbia is a kind of i always call columbia a little oasis in the middle of missouri because it can it can get sketchy mm-hmm. a few miles mm-hmm. in any direction mm-hmm. actually really sketchy i've i could tell you stories but once again that's for another day but <laughs> this is a cool community and i like being a part of it and i like hopefully being you know one little helper to make things a little bit better for everyone here so Well, 25 years ago, August Wilson gave a speech when he called on a white American theater to change its ways. But one of the things that he also said that he believed in was that we can meet on the common ground of the American theater. So I I really hope that that is the case, because if we can't meet on the ground of American theater, I don't know where we can meet. But it sounds like things are moving in the right direction. and, And I would love, love, love to see a black theater company. And I would love to see and to experience stories that come from the black community and that are told by black people. I'm, I'm a little tired of white theater. Yeah. So <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Barrett and Enola, thank you so much for taking time to chat to me. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Next stop today, the world of summer reading, courtesy of Skylark Bookshop and Alex George. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? Well, before we get into this week's book recommendations, I want to take a wee detour. I am a big fan 
of Margaret Atwood, especially her Oryx and Crake series, which really is a must read for anybody who likes dystopian future fiction, which apparently I do. Um, And this week I started reading Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And I am so embarrassed that I did not know her work previously. She is amazing. And I have a whole Margaret Atwood feel about, you know, her work and this ability to create a dystopian future. And she was an Afro-futurist novelist who I think died in 2006 before she could complete her third book in this amazing trilogy called the Earthseed Trilogy. And I bring this up as a segue into a document that was released a couple of weeks ago by a black fantasy author, L.L. McKinney. And the document was called Hashtag Publishing Paid Me, which called on white authors to share what they'd been paid by publishers. And it quickly got populated by white and black and Asian and Latin American and Native American and multiracial authors who filled out the list with information about their book genres, their gender identity, and the amount they got paid. And last time I looked, which was last week, the document had just shy of 3,000 entries. So I wanted to get your take on the world of publishing payments. Yeah, it's been a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, and I've been watching it, as I think most people in the industry have, with, with a great deal of interest. Um, but unfortunately, little surprise, because the takeaway is that writers of colour get paid significantly less as a general rule than white writers. And the example that really sprang out to my mind was Jasmine Ward, who is an extraordinary writer. She has won the National Book Award twice, uh, which is two times more than just about everybody else. Uh, it's it's an amazing thing to have done it once. So to have done it twice is really astonishing. She's she's staggeringly good. And she was writing about how much, even after that critical success, how much she was being offered for her novels. And, you know, and context is everything, of course, but she was being paid way, way less than what a white writer with that kind of critical and award resume would have been paid. And it's just it's just unavoidable. It's just there. And I think one of the things that was so powerful about publishing paid me as a hashtag was that the numbers don't lie. You can just look at them and you can just go, well, you can't really sort of argue them away or finesse them away. They're just they're just right there. And that was one thing. And and the other narrative that came out of it which struck me as rang rang very true to me, is that with writers of colour, there is a sense that they get one shot. And if if their book isn't successful, then they will not get another contract. Whereas that is not always the case with white writers who very often, it seems, can have flop after flop and uh, publishing houses continue to give them contracts and throw money at them. There's less hard data behind behind that one. But anecdotally, that seems to be part of the issue as well. Did you add your name to the list? I mean, you don't have to add your name. You can do it anonymously, right? Uh, I haven't, actually, but I, uh, I think I probably should. The other thing that I thought was interesting, they... They were talking about uh, there's a newly formed Black Writers Guild, and I think this is a, a British thing, but they had written an open letter to British publishers to raise awareness of the inequality. But one of the things they said was one of their complaints about publishers, in Britain anyway, amongst Black writers, is 
that the books are often misunderstood by editors and by the marketing departments. And, and that was part of the issue too, that people weren't understanding what they were writing because there are very few black publishers and black commissioning editors. And that is also part of the problem. It's absolutely part of the problem. And it's something that, you know, along with everybody else, the publishing industry is slowly waking up to. The publishing industry is very, very white indeed. And people are trying to address this in different ways. In fact, just this morning, Macmillan, I read, has created a management committee, which, and and the the whole emphasis of that is in, in an attempt to create a more diverse and equitable environment. Um, obviously, we welcome those kinds of developments. It remains to be seen whether or not they're going to work. But, you know, at least people seem to be to be waking up to this very real issue and, and hopefully we'll see some progress. Yeah, and it's a very easy to access document. I'll put a link to it up on our Facebook page. It's just a, a Google document, hashtag publishing paid me. And it's it's really fascinating reading. I mean, it really is all over the place. There is mm-hmm. there is no no standard at all. Okay, so that's our little, uh, our little segue into the publishing industry. And today we are going to look at dysfunctional family novels for summertime reading. <laughs> yes, a little, bit of, a little bit of light reading. Well, and it occurred to me that, you know, we're all trapped inside with our families. And so we're all probably becoming increasingly dysfunctional <laughs> by the day. So, um, Maybe this will ring true more more than it might have done back in March. I don't know. But, you know, I mean, families and their foibles, a rich vein that, of course, novelists have been plundering ever since people began to, to tell stories. But there have been a few recently that have come out that I've particularly enjoyed that I, I sort of wanted to talk about today. The first one of which is called All Adults Here by Emma Straub. Emma Straub is, uh, uh, like me, uh, a novelist who also owns a bookstore. Her bookstore is in Brooklyn, so um, <laughs> uh, I dare say her rent is a little higher than mine. Um, but this is um, this is a wonderful book. It's set in in a town up in the Hudson Valley in New York, and the matriarch of the family, because there's always a one matriarch or patriarch, uh, is called Astrid Strick, who's a rather acerbic grandmother figure, and she has three children, and they're all a mess. Uh, but it, it's wonderful fun. Straub is very funny. There was one line which I particularly liked, and it was something like, she loved her mother in the same way that she would love a pilot for not driving the uh, airplane into the side of a mountain, <laughs> which, which I thought, I thought, yes, I know, I know what that means. That, that, that's rather good. And it's great fun. It's also, though, there's a real heart to it as well. And she is, um, she's a very smart writer, and um, she's good value. The San Francisco Chronicle says Emma Stroud puts the fun back in dysfunction. So (laughs) (laughs) there you go. And then another book that I actually just finished last week is called The Second Home by Christina Clancy. And that that one has just come out, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And it is set on Cape Cod. And the second home of the title is uh, the family's holiday house that they go to every summer. And uh, there are three kids in this family, uh, one of whom is adopted. And it sort of goes back and forth between, well, the family goes back and forth between uh, Milwaukee and Cape Cod. And then the story goes in two parts as well. And it's uh, it's a really interesting dissection of how families work, how siblings relate to each other, 
as I said, one of the, one of the um, siblings is adopted and that creates its own kinds of tensions. There are lots of secrets, some of which are never quite revealed and others of which are revealed at the end in a very satisfying way. Very well written book. I have been to Cape Cod precisely once some time ago and she does a wonderful job of taking you there. And um, I really did feel that there was a wonderful sense of sort of, of, of being there and of the sort of the, the windswept beaches and, and all of those things. So, so in addition to sort of having a great big mess of a family, you also get to escape to the East Coast, which is, you know, something that not many of us can do right now. So I, I really enjoyed that one as well. Again, a very smart book. That's her first, her first novel. And uh, she said that she sold it when she was 49, but she is now 50. And it came out when she was 50. And I think that's always fascinating that people find their literary voice so long into their life. Well, it is her first novel, but she's been writing a long time. <laughs> I know her. And, and she is not a novice by any stretch of the imagination. And that's quite, when you read this book, you'll, you'll very much get that sense. I mean, it's very assured, a very assured storytelling. And um, not, I think it's fair to say, not that there aren't many laughs in it. It's not quite like Emma Straub in that way, but it's really, really good. And then finally, going back to the laughs, it's a book called Honestly, We Meant Well by Grant Ginder. And his, uh, his previous book was called The People We Hate at the Wedding. So, <laughs> which kind of gives you a sense of what we're talking about here. And this is an extremely funny story about a family. Again, there's a matriarch figure who is a, who's a, a lecturer. She's a classics professor and um, things she thinks are going very well. And then surprise, surprise, everything takes a turn for the worse with a husband and children. And um, she is invited to give a series of lectures in Greece. And so she thinks, well, this will be a good chance to get away and sort of maybe press reset. And of course, things don't quite go according to plan. But he's very good at family dynamics, lots of very funny, pithy one-liners and wonderful characterization as well. So this is a very funny read, but it's also full of heart. And if you like, if you like the Emma Stroud, then I think you'll probably love this one too. And I, I do love reading stories that are set at the beach, particularly now that I feel like I'm not going to be seeing the beach for quite a long time. Right. Okay, three fabulous books to read to pretend we're all on holidays and at the beach. <laughs> Christina Clancy's The Second Home, Emma Straub's All Adults Here, and Grant Ginder's Honestly, we meant well, which is such a great title. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much once again and have a great week. You too. Thanks, Diana. Bye. Finally today, we're off to learn about a new musical, All the Spaces, with one of its creators, Murphy Ward, and University of Missouri Assistant Teaching Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies, Dr. Joy Powell. Good morning, Joy and Murphy. Good morning. Hello. So this week, a new play kind of opens virtually with a workshop production of a new production called All the Spaces, a new musical. And it's penned by Murphy Ward and Kylie Compton with music by Murphy and Sean Campanini. But although the musical is brand new, things really all started out in a garden shed in Camdenton many years ago. Murphy, give us a little background on the three collaborators, you, Kylie and Sean. For sure. I love talking about them. feel more like family, obviously. One of them being my cousin, Kylie Compton. We've spent our 
big part of our lives, telling stories and loving theater and having a family that supported that. And that's actually how we met Sean. I was probably 10. And at that time, we were in Pinocchio together. And he was my uh, Jiminy Cricket, and I was Pinocchio. And then we started doing Missoula Summer Theater together. And over time, his love for music, my love for music, and Kylie's love for music and love for me, we all worked together and talked about this goal to one day write a show and create a cool piece and something that can inspire some people. And hopefully this show gets to do that all these years later. So Joy, this is a a reading. It isn't a fully staged play. Tell us a little bit about the order of events with this production. Sure. Murphy and I, as he said, we met a couple summers ago and then the fall of 2018, when I first became a faculty member at Mizzou in the theater department, we worked on Songs for New World. And then later that semester, he came to me and said, I've got this musical. And we started working on it. And I started reading it. And we started kind of thinking through what the story was going to be, where he wanted to take it, what was the goal. So we talked big picture things a lot. Um and then, you know, he kept editing and we did other shows and, you know, time passes. And then the Mizzou on Broadway opportunity presented itself, which is a program that had happened in the early 2000s. And that is a program where we take original student work and do it on campus here in Columbia and take it to the York Theater in New York City. And because of some donors and some connections that we have there through alumni, we are able to get the York um, at a very reduced rate and perform, students can perform original student work. In the past, that's been plays. They've taken plays to New York. They've never taken a musical with Mizzou on Broadway. So this, we're making history here in that we're going to be able to take a musical to the York. Now, what's cool about the York is one of the things that their major initiatives is they produce and cultivate new musicals. So it feels like a really great connection How does it work with the York Theatre? I mean, Broadway is closed right now. It's not due to reopen until January. What happens to that September production? Uh, We don't know. (laughs) We don't know the future. Um, I don't know what the timeline is going to be. I do know that we're committed to taking this whenever we can. The York is an off-Broadway theatre, but there's a lot of famous musicals that have come out of it. In fact, when uh, we did a visit there, a site visit in November, and we met Maury Yeston, who is a very, very famous musical theater composer. They were doing a review of his show. They were in rehearsals for it. The artistic director and the staff there are really committed to new voices in musical theater. So it's going to be a great uh, momentum builder whenever we can get there. I firmly believe that All the Spaces is going to have a life way beyond this particular moment. It is an excellent story. It's an excellent script. It's an excellent score. One of our collaborators is Brett Christofferson, who has worked on several shows with us in the past few years. He's a musical theater composer himself, and we're the third offering of our season will be a review of his work mm-hmm. um, later on in the month. And we just keep saying, gosh, this is so good. I think for a first offering of putting a musical together and creating it, especially that, I just think it's it's so strong. I mean, I find myself constantly singing the songs. I mean, they just get, they stick with you, right? But what will premiere this week is a reading directed by um, Brandon Riley, who is one of our grad students. And uh, a cast of students are in the show. 
And the idea was to really get it on its feet. And so for Murphy and his team and for those of us working on Mizzou on Broadway to see see the lines on their feet, see actors breathe life into characters, hear the songs, and then from there really go, okay, what's the next step? And so for us, it's to do a fully staged, fully realized production in Studio 4, full set, costume, lighting, all of that. Because you have to have the workshop part of the process to really get the script and the score where the writers and the producers want it to be. So this is a really important part of the process. We also wanted to share with the folks that are supporting us financially, um, time-wise, all of those things. We really wanted to give them a chance to see the process, right? So when they see this reading and this workshop and they see the fully realized production, everyone is really a part of making that happen. And I think that's, that's really, really important. What's great about the show is that you feel Murphy's heart and his empathy and his just love that he puts into the world. It really comes through these characters. Not that they're all him. I don't mean that. But like you just feel the feeling you have when you see Murphy perform or you're around him is the same feeling you have when you see the show. It's really powerful. Thank you. Oh, Murphy, I just could not be prouder, my goodness. And this hasn't been easy. It's been hard to figure Mm -hmm. out how do you do this in this context? How do you take a script that a student's done and help them get where they need to be and not, but that's still their voice, right? But help foster that process, you know? And I think Murphy has just done an incredible job. Anyway, we've done like probably 20 different endings, you know. Oh, it's, it's been yeah. It's it's a it's that's the invisible work that happens and is essential but that people don't always see, you know. So How big is the cost? Um, it's 13 I think I have people. A, yeah, I was going to say. Right? So, what do we see? Is it like a like a Zoom window with multiple faces in the window at one time each reading their parts? It is, but they're performing. It feels like a show. And there's been backgrounds uh, that have been created by our scenic designer. And cost, our costumer, Mark Vital, has worked with the students to curate their looks, but from their closet, you know, because they're all, some of them, I mean, we've got people in Texas. We, we had someone in New York when we first started. I mean, it was, people were scattered. And so, you know, we had to kind of reinvent the wheel, you know, of how are we going to do this? Even, even though it's a workshop production, it really feels like a show. You're going to love it. I can't wait to hear what you think. So, Murphy, the story revolves around three high school teenagers, Gail, Bryce, and Tara. Tell us a little bit about the story. For sure. It's a kind of part, I would say, CW high school drama, the kind <laughs> of parts of like uh, Serrano de Bergerac, a little story of Gail and his like optimism and how that kind of influences and affects the people around him and about legacy and wanting to talk about that and some of the drive and some of the people I've met in my life, like, you know, both as a performer, as like, you know, someone that wants to love and wants to spread all this energy, but also as like an athlete and sometimes the people we meet. So Bryce is a football star and all the three of them were actually childhood friends. And then as kind of time went by and Gail has has to kind of deal with some of the things in his life that maybe some would think are holding him back. He is actually the hero of our story, bright star and like passion for space he kind of interacts and starts to affect the people in his life to really show them that maybe the things that they're worrying about aren't as important as they really think. And that there is all this kind of question of what we leave behind, you know, as we go through life. 
Tell me about writing the music. Obviously, you also were part of that process. And I guess you start with a story arc and you flesh it out from there. And then what order does everything happen in? Do you write the songs? Do they come after the story? Does the story bend to fit the songs? Does the music come before the lyrics? How does how does the whole process come together? Yeah, it's for sure kind of a it's a crazy patterning of things. But uh, kind of the process was that like I knew Sean, we had grown up together. He actually has like three studio albums that and you know things on Spotify. He's a, went to school for sound engineering and singer songwriter for you know the greater part of a decade. And so that's kind of was a part of like, I already knew that he had so much singing chops and had like a great sense of music and played the whole, all the instruments that we would ever need for something like this. And, you know, in the studio, had his own studio environment. And so I knew that and I wanted that. It was like, okay, but then we need to start talking about a story because that has to matter to people. And so I, you know, I really started like thinking about stories and characters and wanting to tell a realistic, compelling story. And, you know, I workshopped that with Kylie and kind of went through this whole route of trying to like refine this plot and refine the story. And from there, I would write kind of beats. Like I'd write like, I, there needs to be a song here. Here's a title. Here are dummy lyrics. And then we would go to, into a studio and we would just workshop and workshop and try a different song, try a different lyric. And, you know, amidst our jobs, amidst everything, amidst school, just like, you know, be there as much as I could just because, you know, I wanted to will this into being and I want to be able to tell these types of stories. And Obviously, hopefully give a great product like we're going to because our actors did an amazing job. And from there, you know, we recorded, we recorded, we recruited people in the community, such as the people from CEC, CCP, like some of the people that I had met in my theater goings and probably some people that have been on talking with you before. And so from there, you know, after we had kind of had some renderings, that's why I would bring it to people, show them as many people as I could, Dr. Powell, people in the department. And it was after that, then like, you know, as we're in this process, it's taken a lot of people that I've seen our potential. And after that, like, you know, been working with David Myers and School of Music, and he's done some incredible work. And they've allowed us to use a lot of that equipment, which is amazing. And I'm glad that Dr. Powell has fostered that relationship with the School of Music so that we have this opportunity. Well, let's listen to a song from the show. This is A Girl Like You. Murphy, go ahead and very briefly set the scene for us and then tell us who's singing. So this is a song between Bryce and Tara. So two of the characters that have a uh, we'll just say a tense, like, you know, relationship, <laughs> you know, part frenemies, part uh, like, you know, we'll say it's love hate for sure. But uh, this in this song, Bryce and Tara are having a duet and they're kind of confronting in an art closet at the high school. And who are the name of the actors that are playing Bryce and Tara? In our production here, we have Joelle Rodriguez and Rainisha Green. But the actors in the song are Tim Bommel and Gabriela Cicerelli. If you don't need me I don't Why do you come when I call? You get so angry Oh, I'm angry Over nothing at all Oh, that's amusing Coming from the guy who throws a fit Just cause they kicked the football A little too far to one side Got all these standards Yeah, what about them? For everyone but yourself All these conditions I like my standards but maybe they don't always fit someone else It's not like I asked for much You're just so if I weren't there, would, would you, you even, even care? My guess is not that much. I know there's no such thing as perfect, but you may be too far out of you. I thought the struggle would be worth it, but now I know that I don't want a girl, want a guy like you. 
And that was Tim Bommel and Gabriella Sossarelli singing A Girl Like You. And this is from the um, album. This is a concept album. So as you said before, these are not the people who are singing in the Mizzou production. But how can people get hold of the soundtrack to the musical, to the album? See, that that is definitely in the works. And I think for now, you know, we're going to be having it on YouTube as this performance here. And I'd love to help develop and work on after we've done all this mastering with the school music, maybe even be able to do an album with our cast, you know, not sure what the future holds or, you know, we're all just trying to make it through to get this production and so near so far going. But I'd love to look for future collaborations and creating great music and great works with these people. So the album is is kind of theoretical right now. It's not actually a physical thing sure. that we can go and buy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's the hopes is that someday we can either get on Spotify or, you know, disseminate it in the right ways. And, you know, that, that's still in the, that's definitely still in the works because, you know, as a student musical, we're just doing our best. <laughs> <laughs> and Joy, this is on this weekend. What are the dates for the virtual readings and, and do people buy tickets for that? No, this is free. All the spaces will premiere tonight on the Mizzou Theater YouTube channel at 7 p.m. And folks can stream it anytime through Sunday evening, July 5th. And they can watch it as many times as they want in that window. Um, but we really felt with the workshop and, you know, honestly, the current context in which we find ourselves, we really didn't want anything to prevent people from being a part of summer theater. We know a lot of folks are in much different financial circumstances, living circumstances, all kinds of circumstances than what they anticipated. And so we really just wanted to give this um, as a gift to our community, to our audiences who have faithfully uh, supported us for over 50 years. And so we, we wanted to make it free. Well, that is a lovely gift. Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. My pleasure. Joy Powell and Murphy Ward, thank you so much for stopping by virtually to talk to me about the new production. I look forward to seeing it. Thank you. Thanks. And that is it for another week. We have once again easily filled an hour with the vibrant mid-Missouri art scene. And as usual, I had to leave low doubt just to squeeze everything into a single hour. I will post a link to the Dear White American Theatre Letter and to Murphy, Kylie and Sean's new musical, All the Spaces, on the Speaking of the Arts Facebook page. And if you want to listen to this show again or suggest it to someone else, all the episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more news from the local arts scene. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.